1: Greetings. Hey, thanks for joining us here on the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason. You already knew that. It was in the introduction. Got a great show for you today. I've got a friend of show. She's a repeat guest. Her name is Catherine Lotspeech. Colorado agricultural um, millennial that she is. She's a host of Millennial Ag, a podcast of her own. And she's going to talk about that later. Our discussion is going to be on big versus small. And more importantly, why does there need to be a versus? That's what we're talking about today. Catherine, thanks for being here.
0: Thanks, Damien. Great to be back. Uh,
1: before we go any further, I should remind our dear listeners that this podcast is available as an audio and as a video. Yeah, all year we've been doing this. Now we put them up on a YouTube channel. Go to my web, my, my YouTube page. It's, uh, it's Damien Mason. Uh, just go on YouTube and Google, type in Damien Mason. You'll find it. And there's a playlist for the Business of Our Culture and the Do Business Better podcast. And this podcast, as so many before it, is brought to you by Harvest Profit. Harvest Profit is a software solution for your agricultural enterprise to help you manage the ins and the outs and the nuts and the bolts. And I'm talking about the money, the business side of your enterprise. Harvestprofit.com is where you'll find what you need. Get yourself a 14 day free trial. All right, Catherine Lotspitch, big versus small. You and I talked about this topic before we started recording. Why does there have to be a versus and what are we talking about?
0: Well, um, there's there's big operations in ag and there's small operations in ag. And I think one of the things that we hear an awful lot in agriculture is that there's a big versus small war going on, um, you know, particularly in production agriculture, I would say. And, and I think, you know, one part of me thinks that it's become a war because somebody decided that it had to be a war and everybody you know, went bananas thinking that someone who wasn't their same size makes it so that there isn't anything left of the pie for them to take, if that makes sense.
1: You know, people have been infighting. It's an interesting deal. Uh, I get, uh, in fact, I I get emails and stuff from people that uh, say very positive stuff about me and my outreach and what I do for ag. And I always try to talk to non-ag people about our industry, because as I always say, and you've heard me say it, um, we're guilty of preaching to the choir. We love to talk to ourselves about ourselves. The other thing we like to do is fight within ourselves, you know, and it's been going on since the ranchers. Remember the cattle barons versus the sheep people, and it's the conventional versus the organic and the this versus. Is that um, on the size thing we've talked about before because you were on this podcast maybe like a year or so ago and your parents were your basic average size Uh, dairy operators in the Northeast of the United States. And then several years ago said, we're going to be in the commodity milk production business. We're going to have to do it at scale. And so they became huge factory farms, industrial agriculture. So you've got some familiarity with it because your family was just your average run-of-the-mill smaller dairy farm, and now they're a factory farm. So you've been on both sides of it. Um, Is that where you're informed about this? Is that where where it comes from? You almost have a little chip on your shoulder about this whole size fight, don't you?
0: You know, you, that's, that's probably fair to say. I do have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder because of it. And I think, you know, it comes from what I've experienced in that it seems like um, often small farms are really, really, you know, outraged or upset with big farms because they perceive big farms as taking away the market share. Um, and in milk in particular, our listeners will know that Uh, milk is sold by the hundredweight to a co-op so really you aren't competing with whoever's down the road because you're going to get the same pay price you might not get the same pay price as the guy in california versus the northeast but your neighbors are all getting the same pay price about and um you know having watched what my parents did with their business and growing it to the size that they did so that it could be profitable of all things um you know it's proof positive that it's possible and that um You know, they didn't let the idea of size get in the way of what they had plans for.
1: So the thing is, uh, one, one point you just made there is that there's this perception among the folks in our own industry that say things like, I've heard it said, I rent my land to a pretty large scale dairy operation and i've heard other people say oh them big dairy operations they put these small ones out of business mm-hmm. no that's not really true as you said milk is a commodity it's sold on a global marketplace um and uh they, there's not as though they are going and putting it on a business they're just uh, producing at a bigger scale and this happens throughout everything you know from soybeans to green sorghum to whatever a matter of scale but there's another thing with without our, industry, I mean, not within, but without our industry, the, the non-farm people love to say those words about industrial agriculture, factory farm, big corporate farming, whatever, and it's as though they have this romanticized vision Uh, The suburban neighbors that I have in Arizona, many of them probably have this romanticized vision of uh, Ma and Paul Kettle out there and she's sprinkling some grain in the driveway for the chickens and he's out there with a hoe in his hand, you know, and there's, that's, that still persists in the year 2020.
0: It absolutely does. And I would say, you know, it might even be more persistent now because well, two things, one people think that that's the way it used to be. And you know, in some ways it was, but two, um, companies, food companies have capitalized on that idea and have convinced people that that's how agriculture should roll, that that's how agriculture should do things. Um, and so now people are voting with their dollars to make things, to to try and make that happen, you know, almost retroactively. And um, these huge food companies, because they're big, you know, they're not just the local whoever down in downtown um, they have figured that out and they capitalize on the marketing for it. And people pay out the nose to think that their milk came from a little red barn.
1: Yeah. And it's not just milk. it's everything. And you know, I talk about it, Catherine, in my book, food fear. It's a book about the business of agriculture. If you've not picked up your copy, dear listener, I would encourage you to do so you can do that Damienmason.com. But anyway, it's, it's neither is wrong or right. You know, you can do whatever you want. There is just the issue that this is a business. And if you're talking about commodity production, you probably need to be at scale. There's a reason that I can't build pickup trucks out here in my barn uh, and be anywhere close to what Ford can when they build, you know, three quarters of a million F-150s every year. So when you frame it that way, then most people get it. And you say, okay, yeah, can you build a pickup truck? Well, yeah, probably, you can buy some steel, some bolts, and <laughs> yeah, but the reality is, no, you're not going to be able to do it. And that's what uh, the business side of the agriculture is. But more than ever, because I don't really think the versus is any worse than it's ever been. There's always been somebody bitching about somebody else in our industry, at least it <laughs> been my observation. I think that there's more opportunity now for a small than there ever than there has been in many, many years because of the internet and the democratization of, you know, you don't have to sell your stuff through Walmart, like, you maybe would have had to in the old days. You don't have to sell a food product through Kroger because right now online food ordering, um, small retailers or retailing online, and then most states have made it so that you can do direct to consumer from the farm stuff with some pretty good protections. I know like here in Indiana, they protect that kind of stuff a little more than they used to. So really the, the niche stuff that small stuff has more opportunity than it probably has in decades.
0: That's certainly what I've been seeing over the last couple of years and particularly in light of the pandemic. Um, I've got some friends here in Colorado who have a craft beef business and they, I mean, they raise those animals from, you know, from babies and they oversee the process all the way through um, to it getting delivered on their customer's doorstep. And um, they were doing fine before the pandemic. But after the pandemic hit in mid spring, they had to stop advertising because they were so, so full. They were completely booked up because people because that was a reliable and local
1: meat source, which people were really, really intrigued by. Yeah. People like the whole local thing. So there's more demand for local and small than there's ever been talking about another aspect of big versus small. Um, there seems to be sometimes a pride in, uh, in our agricultural people, like they are pridefully, uh, Belligerently uh, against something. And that's an interesting angle to me. It's almost like the same thing. And I, I I can't stand it. When the old thing used to be, hey, did you hear about the farmer that won a million dollars in the lottery? And he said, I'm going to keep farming until I run out of that. All that crap about being broke. There's a prideful, um, I, I almost like a prideful ignorance. Why are you so goddamn proud of being broke? Why are you so proud of being little? Why wouldn't it just more be proud of the? business you create or proud of the entity that you have rather than of how big it is or how broke it is. I, I've never understood that. There's I've been poor. And I didn't find it to be virtuous.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, I've, I've experienced that as well. And I think you could also throw in there prideful about how hard you work and how little sleep you get or no vacations that you take. Um, I don't know what that's about except for pride and, you know, just being able to boast that, you know, you've had it worse than someone else. And so therefore you, you, have earned the right to bitch about it. I'm not really sure, yeah. but it is, it is incredibly, um, well, it's mystifying to me because why, why would you boast about being broke? Just like you said, it's your, this is your business. And I think that there's, you know, that missing connection of, of it being an actual business. Cause you know, Oh, it is a way of life and blah, 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 blah. And yeah. Okay. That's great. But if you're not making money, what you're doing is just a hobby um you know i don't know why you would ever ever want to see your your um, balance sheet in the red year after year after year after year and i i don't know, but that belligerence is absolutely there it's it 's true and it's it's mystifying because I just you know that to me that's not something to be proud of I mean wouldn't you want to figure out a way to make yourself successful?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting thing. I remember I I, I don't argue with people on uh, social media. I don't even really particularly like Twitter, but that's where a lot of ag people hang out. So uh, I remember there's some discussion five or six years ago, and it was it got down to we were, it was so dumbed down that I had to check out over what what a, what is a, what is a farm, and then it was these people chiming in about well place where people work hard and, and you know break even. I'm like well, that's, that's sad. That's that's just tragic A place where you work hard and break even. And, uh, and <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't think that's right on the business side of it. The other part of it is there are folks that think that somehow big is more profitable. Now that's the one thing that is as a business minded person, I don't, I don't care what uh, you know, what you're talking about is it comes down to what you can do that you, you, you have the lifestyle you want and you can make money. I know some smaller operators that have some tremendous profit margin. I know a sweet corn guy that does really well. He has to work like hell for about six weeks, but uh, he he does pretty well. Nine acres of sweet corn. He's my cousin. Um, I know that there's some of these people that are doing uh, a more niche uh, category stuff, grass fed beef. Like you talk about, you said craft beef. I thought it was craft beer, but boutique beef. Is it, is it, is it craft beef really?
0: So it's actually the company's called Colorado Craft Beef and it came about because of Colorado's love affair with craft beers. They thought they could play off of that and they very much have and they're
1: doing really really well with it. Well, I keep thinking you say craft I just imagine like the, these steers like going to 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 Michaels and picking up some yarn and doing you know the <laughs> macrame that kind of thing. All right, so what do you see happening uh, as we look as we look ahead? Um I say that there's actually going to be two types of farms there's going to be big commodity and and I mean it'll continue to be big and then it's going to be niche and then niches sometimes become commodity over time right um, uh, you know cage free hens were a niche and now most states are a lot of the companies Kroger or whatever McDonald's says they have to be cage free so Uh, A lot of times niche then becomes commodity. I see those two things splitting, but I see more opportunity for the small than there's ever been, your take
0: yeah i see big certainly you know if we're doing the big versus small i see big getting more consolidated um and being made up of more of what we think of as a traditional farm family or farm enterprise um because the people who have been farming for generations have figured out how to make it profitable and in a lot of those um instances those people have become big um and moved into making commodity just like my family did on the other side i see um a huge opportunity for value added. So, you know, just to go back to the dairy example, you know, if you have 50 cows and you're making cheese or or um, ice cream or, you know, cream-lined milk or something like that. Um, but something that, like you said, isn't gonna be in a Walmart or a Kroger or at least not more than a few that's in your area. Yeah. Um, and I also think something that I'm starting to see in my line of business is there's a lot of people who aren't from an agricultural background, but think that they want to be farmers, um, you know, and decided to build a, a farm that can supply a whole salad and a beef and, a, you know, and bacon to somebody. And there's people, I guess, non-traditional um Agricultural backgrounds or no agricultural backgrounds, but people who got sick of the city and made too much money and decided that hey, having chickens in the backyard sounded like fun, and then they you
1: know. Yeah, they sort so of in the '80s, out. in the '80s, they all watched that show with Bob Newhart. So they all wanted to go to Vermont and open a B and B. And then <laughs> uh, now it's they want to have backyard chickens. And then now with the whole coronavirus thing, they decided they don't want to live in the city. They're going to uh, be self-sufficient. You got to tell these people that uh, you know an acre of herbs isn't probably going to keep you self-sufficient, but so be it. Um, some reality thing about this is that uh, I think that we're going to have to understand that that's what that's absolutely going to continue, and I think it's great. You talk about the the carving out a niche. My wife and I stopped at a place about maybe five weeks ago and four weeks ago, and we were um, uh, grabbing lunch, and it's kind of a crafty little place, in fact. And they have milk four point nine nine dollars 99 for a half gallon, uh, and it. Uh, I picked up some. It's whole milk and it's produced right here in Indiana. And I asked the proprietor, I said, do you know any backstory? He says, yeah, I know the whole story about this. As they were going broke, they milked 80 jerseys, and they decided you can't really uh, be of scale doing that. So they started their own, they don't homogenize it. So it's unhomogenized. And uh, I don't think they do anything but whole that way they're pushing the whole fact that it's got lots of fat in it. And then, uh, you know, it's got pictures of Jersey cows and grass fed and all that kind of thing. So yeah, that's where the category goes and you're going to be a little more creative. I think there's still a lot of these folks out here that think you can be small and also still just produce commodities. And that's probably got another five to 10 year window. And then I think it's, you're done.
0: Right. And I think two things that popped to mind as you were, as you were talking about that, um, you know, there's going to be a whole lot of blow black and fanfare in five to ten years from now when all of the little guys who are trying to produce on a commodity scale go out, um, and blaming that on on the big producers, mm-hmm. <laughs> which will be an interesting.
1: Yeah, the soybeans soy will be hovering around break even, and they'll say it's because the guy down the road farms ten thousand acres that they couldn't make money on break even beans. This is the Business of Agriculture podcast. Catherine speech is my friend and guest. She's been on this show before. You should go and listen to some of the back episodes. She's a dairy farm woman. She's uh, got her own podcast called the Millennial Ag Podcast. She has a co host, some gal named Val, who's like a rancher girl. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> this podcast uh, is brought to you by Harvest Profit. Check out harvestprofit.com. If you need a software solution that'll help your agricultural enterprise run more efficiently and, more importantly, more profitably, harvestprofit.com. Nick Horub started the company to help out people just like you. All right. Catherine, a couple of realities, because you and I are around non-ag people. Uh, I sit on planes where I used to, uh, and I I live in Arizona half the year in the suburbs. So I'm around these people, and they'll say things like, well, I heard that all those government programs favor factory farms. And I want, dear listener, I want you to share this episode with anybody you know that might be somewhat removed from the industry, because I want to straighten some things out. Just read an article. This year, 2020, your federal government is gonna give $37 billion, $37.2 billion of federal money is going to be given to farms and farmers. That is, uh, just to put it in perspective, net farm income is gonna be about 103 billion. So you're talking about over one third of their income is going to be from the, uh, the taxes that you pay. Uh, not being mean, just being honest. That's an article I just read in AgriPulse. Okay, so here's the thing. When folks say, oh, but that all goes to those big factory farms. The truth is some of it does because as a matter of scale, if you have a 20,000 acre operation, you're probably gonna get more dollars per acre, or you get the same dollars per acre, but you'll get more dollars than someone that farms 200 acres. But also there's a cap on this. And that's what Ms. Catherine and I were just talking about before we started recording. Most of the payments were capped at $250,000 per entity. Now, $250,000 for your parents' dairy operation that has 42 employees. It's about one afternoon of operating expense?
0: Maybe, maybe. <laughs> it's not going to, it's sure not going to make much of a debt in the feed bill for the month. Sure. Um, and just in case anybody's in any doubt as to what background I come from, my parents actually have 85 employees.
1: Oh, 85 employees, there you go. I was off by half. Okay, so the reality is that uh, a lot of these government payments, uh, are capped out. So uh, just in case you've heard that somehow the USDA programs favor large-scale farming, there's never going to be a perfect because the people in the South complain about the Midwest and the people in the Midwest complain about the Plain States. And then it just goes on and on, on again. It's always somebody bitching about something, but um, uh, there are caps on that. So what do you got for me on money? Anything?
0: Yes. <laughs> um, And it's, it's just that you know, that, that $250,000 is is a drop in the bucket to um, these larger-sized larger, larger sized operations um, that make how much of our food, Damien? Do you know the percentage of, of what our large operations make?
1: I do, and I was getting ready to pull that out. In my book, Food Fear, the book about air culture, dear listener, I have a chapter called Who's Really Producing the Food in the section on Farmers. 105,453 farms produced three quarters of the nation's crop revenue. 105,453 farms in the 2017 Census of Agriculture produced three quarters of the nation's crop revenue. So, of the three, uh, I'm sorry, of the 2.1 million farms. 105,000 on a percentage basis is, as you all know, about 5%. So about 5% of the farms produce 75% of the all the crop revenue in the United States of America.
0: Right. And I'm sure that's horrifying for, um, you know, a lot of hippie, yuppie people to think about. But that's that's what the consumer demanded 50 years ago, you know, to have a safe, cheap, abundant food supply. And America's farmers answered that, that call. And um, we're reaping the rewards now. So okay, that, that government money, $250,000 doesn't mean a whole lot to the big operators. Um, but the big operators are who keep the Wonder Bread on the shelves during a pandemic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the small guys, you know, that if they, if they got in proportion that large of, of a support check from the government um, would mean the world to these small operations. But my question is, um, does that mean that the government is trying to keep small farmers afloat in business when they can't make the numbers work.
1: Well, that's, uh, of course we're going to get some blowback because if we say that, and again, uh, you know, I am a small farmer, just, just, I, I, mine's a hobby beef operation, not a craft beef operation because my (laughs) steers don't know how to do crafts. But, um, and I, and I used to, with my brother when he was still alive, make my little hay patches. I don't have the equipment. So I still, I could justify it back then. So I am a small farm guy. So don't, don't, don't come uh, bashing on us, but here's the reality. If you give $250,000 to uh, a small operator that. Just hovering around break even all the time uh that may that is life changing i mean it's, that's 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 like the most profitable year that we're gonna have and again, if you give that same amount to a huge operator, it's you know a day of operating expense or something like that so one could say that indeed, the United States Department of Agriculture actually is propping up uh, smaller or even sometimes less efficient uh, operations. Um, now my brother who works for the United States Department of Agriculture would say that, uh, don't forget that their their goal isn't necessarily to prop up, their goal is to just make sure they have, we have always uh, abundant production and uh, if that means we prop up. But I see the argument being made by other folks that say, wait a minute, you're keeping the, you're keeping these guys down the road here uh, afloat when they really should, shouldn't even be in business
0: mm-hmm. yeah that's an argument i've heard several times um you and i have had that discussion and um i you know it it's i i'm not sure how you could draw any other conclusions um although i'm sure that you could play devil's advocate for us and, and come up with a reason or two but um you know it's frustrating when when um, agriculture gets thrown under the bus for for um, receiving these types of payments. In this case, what did you say? A third of our of our uh, revenue this year is coming from uh, the
1: thirty-seven billion dollars is what's between Paycheck Protection Program, the Coronavirus Food Relief Program, and then what other other just USDA payments. So they're saying that it looks like thirty-seven billion dollars is going to be going to farms in the United States, which is significant. I'm out up against what net farm income is projected to be one hundred and three billion this year. So, right thirty-seven percent of your uh, of it is free money.
0: Yes. Which is, mm, that's still mystifying for me too. That, you know, it, I feel like it supports um, those who can't actually hack it in the business world. Um, You know, and it's, it's, um, it's not letting Darwin's law work itself out.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so as I point out in my book that there's, you know, you can agree or disagree uh, with it, but there's, it's very, it seems very plain that the United States Department of Agriculture wants to keep a certain amount of, of, Operators, because uh, if, if they didn't, I guess, then it would be the thing of, well, you just allowed it to become, you know, the big three economics. Um, which is interesting because we, we are so, it's interesting that our consumer Catherine is against big, but they're not in any other way. They're not against big airlines. They're not against big car manufacturers. They're not against big. Jesus. Apple is worth two
0: billion dollars right now.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, and I, I made the point once and I said, you know, uh, all these people that are against scale or against, uh, you know, wh- what about the fact that Google and Amazon and Apple have st- uh, such market capitalization that they just, they can they can swing a very large bat. I mean, Amazon, uh, I find it interesting that people that oppose large farms are uh, not opposed to Amazon. Speaking of big versus small, um, legislation, Cory Booker, the, pretty far left-leaning uh, senator from New Jersey, and Elizabeth Warren, also an extremely left-leaning senator from Massachusetts, introduced a bill uh, this winter, uh, before we all became consumed with coronavirus, and it was to limit farm size. You think that something like that, after we get through this whole pandemic, uh, what not, does, does that come back into, are we gonna be hearing about this again?
0: I'm sure that we're gonna be hearing about it again, um, especially because Booker and Warren like to think that they know what's going on in agriculture. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been I've been baffled by their attempts to legislate. Um, it's not even prosperity. It's just legislate the size of farms that they think should be based on, you know, some little pie in the sky dream. I'm certain that we're going to hear about it again. Um, probably not till after the election, like you say, because we're all consumed with coronavirus and, and politics right now. Um, you know, I don't like to hear that agriculture has... Um, come into those kind of crosshairs because someone else legislating the way that I would um, you know operate my business is very very concerning to me which you know it's a pretty broad statement because I know that the government gets involved on all kinds of levels and all kinds of businesses but I don't want to be legislated into a way of of running my operation, whatever it might be. And somebody's, you know, arbitrary decision on what the right farm size is, you know, this goes back to your Twitter conversation or, you know, yeah. <laughs> lack of, lack yeah, there that's,
1: what, that's what amazed me was that then I'm like, well, does, does uh, two centers are going to determine what constitutes big and what constitutes small. So, you know, it's, it's becomes extremely arbitrary. Um, and they say, well, you know, once you get over this, so at 1000, uh, head of animals or 1000, you know, at 999, you're okay. So it becomes very arbitrary. Does the fight go away? Do we end up, do we end up moving on? And we, uh, you know, we just decided you think that this is what people in ag like to do. Oh, wow.
0: That's a great conversation. That's a great, that's a great question. Um, you know, something else is going to come along that we're going to be outraged about. I think that this is going to be something that is always going to be between agriculturists. Um, until, well, I don't know even if that's true, but until there's a real serious threat that causes us all to actually have to draw together. And you would think that a couple of senators who are very left leaning who have no background in agriculture uh, purporting to tell us what to do would have been that type of a thing or that type of a, you know, that type of an impetus, but it hasn't been um, maybe it's because coronavirus has completely wiped it from our minds.
1: Yeah. I don't know what, I mean something that's going to bring everybody together and be all on the same page. Um, I I don't know. Uh, ag people do indeed like to have their spats. So I don't know, uh, what, what it would be. Uh, I'm, I'm with you. I think that the good news is since there's market opportunity for small, more than there's ever been, I think that it probably becomes less intense this whole, like I said, the the person, you know, we, we see that the person that wants to farm 500 acres of corn and soybeans, you know, that was a great idea back in 1975, you know? So, um, I think it was probably get probably a little bit better. Now, the, uh, the other angle on this is <clears throat> I think, um, if, if you got, if you're, not certain size, you're gonna end up being pushed into being big because of consolidation. And I'm talking about consolidation of the consumer, meaning the the, the companies that buy our stuff are gonna end up wanting to just have big contracts. Look what happened like with meat. Uh, if you had a contract with Tyson, you probably had a more likely chance of getting your pigs uh, to market during this whole meat closure than if you didn't, right? So I think you're gonna see, um, unfortunately we're gonna see a forced, a forced consolidation just because of um, like we saw with milk dean's now is bankrupt dean's said we're not even going to pick up your milk uh i mean it just adds less demand so they just kind of started cutting people so it sort of de facto consolidates by doing that your thoughts
0: yes because for dean's the milk processor it was a lot easier to send one truck to one farm instead of sending one farm to pick up milk and get in full entire load to take back to the plant than it was to make stops at five or six farms and take that load back to the plant um and it also you know, from a, a food safety standpoint, I suppose having fewer suppliers is also a good thing as long as those suppliers um, <laughs> take care of quality control.
1: Yeah, well then, then also your eggs are all in one basket. So then all of a sudden, if you have, uh, if you have a, a, a consumer problem there, um, <clears throat> closing thoughts, big versus small, besides the fact you have a chip on your shoulder about this very topic, <laughs> um, I'm gonna give some numbers and I'll let you go after I do that. So there's 2 million farms in the United States of America, 50 years ago when I was born, 51 years ago, technically, there were 3 million farms. So we've got 50% less farms in the United States of America today than we did the day I came home from the hospital. Um, that's, the, that's, that's been going on since the 1930s. We hit peak farm in about the 1930s. Uh, there were like 8 million farming operations. So this has been going on for a long, long time. I actually see, see that we will probably stay about right here again we'll see less of the commodity producers but we're going to see that burgeoning amount of i think this actually this trend sticks around for a while this whole i'm gonna you know, my my partner and i are going to move to the country and we're going to grow organic blueberries and uh you know and have a an herb garden and i think that's i think that's here for a while because the the marketplace will pay for it your thoughts
0: yes the marketplace has proven that it will pay for it um throughout throughout the pandemic and i think you know, the pandemic gave us um, much sharper insight into consumer buying habits and preferences than we ever could have paid for through surveys. So we got to watch it, um, you know, fall out in real time. And people do want those specialty items and they want to feel like they're special by supporting something that seems special. So I agree, I think the the marketplace will bear it out. Um, You know, one last thing that I have to say is I'm afraid that this movement towards just big farms and just small farms is gonna create Um, more division between consumers as well and you know it's going to widen that economic gap because those who can afford to buy boutique and local and craft will be able to use those smaller farmers right and and have a fantastic pantry full of fancy things while um you know college students and people who don't live above that that poverty yeah, the, line. Low, low,
1: the lower income uh, consumer, you're saying, then we just got to make sure that there still is the, they, they, we still need commodity grade product for the bottom third or half.
0: Yes. And most importantly, the public, all of them need to know that there's nothing wrong with that food just because it came from a large farm
1: or because it was bought from a large company. And as we pointed out, most, most of what you eat does come from 105,453. Write that down, dear listener. 105,453 farms according to the 2017 Census of Agriculture produced three quarters of the nation's crop revenue. All right. Anything else? I think that'll
0: about do it for our conversation today, Damien. I really enjoyed it.
1: I like having Catherine Lott speech on this uh, this, uh, uh, podcast. And so if other people are like big fans of yours, as am I, how do they find you?
0: You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Millennial Ag. We also have a website, millennialag.com, and you can email us, talk to us at millennialag.com. And if you're looking for us on any of your favorite podcast platforms, be sure to spell millennial with two N's and you should find us.
1: And one of the things that you'll like about Catherine is unlike the other people in her age group, because I just read this article: fifty-two percent of American adults between age eighteen and twenty-nine. of folks between 18 and 29 live with their parents. Catherine lives on her own. She's like such a big girl. She has her own house and uh, she's like all grown up. Doesn't live with her parents. Mostly because she said she likes them just fine, but they would bug her her to death. All right. Mom and dad, if you're listening, I love you, but I don't want to live with you. There you go. Uh, This podcast was brought to you by Harvest Profit. Please go on harvestprofit.com and check it out. It's a software solution that'll help your business run like the business it is. The inputs, the outputs, the the money, the accounts receivable, the accounts payable. You can manage it even down to like, you can buy farm, buy different parcels that you operate. It's a software solution that will help your company, your agricultural enterprise uh, be more profitable. Check out harvestprofit.com for a free 14 day trial. Also. If you're a listener to this podcast and you are a viewer of this podcast you should know about the business of ag success group that's right it's a new consortium that i am creating along with michelle klieger and todd thurman as my co-hosts we're going to put on programming two times per month it's real simple you log on Catherine's going to be there you log on to a zoom call and it's going to be 60 to 90 minutes of interactive online programming we're going to discuss business outlook advisory it's going to be a place to network it's smarter than twitter it's more deep than a facebook post and if you really want to make connections that you can use for your benefit of your career and your life in agriculture you'll do it more through this than you will by going on linkedin and posting an article okay there it is it's the business of agriculture success group you can find it by just sending me a message or go on damienmason.com and sign up there katherine lodge beach it's always a pleasure
0: it always is thanks damien
1: Thanks. Till next time. It's the business of agriculture.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode of the business of agriculture, please share it with your network. Be sure to connect with Damien on LinkedIn, like his Facebook fan page and follow him on Instagram and Twitter for speaking inquiries or to purchase Damien's books, food, fear, or do business better. Go to Damien